What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, a world of changes. Johnson & Johnson plans to split into two, spinning its consumer health business off from pharma and medical devices. CEO Alex Gorsky. I don't think I've ever in my 35-year career seen a more promising time and seen a greater opportunity for acceleration. And making sense and making it work with investor Ray Dalio. There were so many tools today that make it very clear how productive people are, and it gives them greater freedom to be productive in that way. So I think the data and the technology enables freedom and choice. And Netflix former chief talent officer Patty McCord, who tells it like it is. I applaud the death of the term best practices and the death of the term uh, consistency because we've started to realize that our workers are adults and they come to work with very different circumstances. It's Friday, November 12th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. On today's podcast, we focus on a world of change. The coronavirus pandemic has redefined the way we work and how where we work evolves. Today's news, Johnson & Johnson, a 135-year-old stalwart American brand, plans to split into two public companies, spinning off the consumer division, Band-Aids, Baby Powder, Tylenol, sometime in the next two years, and focusing the other company on prescription drugs and medical devices. This is the second time this week a modern major conglomerate has announced a plan to split itself. General Electric, another company with more than a century in business, charting a new and maybe more focused path. Johnson & Johnson was already undergoing a transition as CEO Alex Gorsky had previously announced that he will step down at the end of this year. Becky Quick spoke with Gorsky today about the split, about him, and what the future holds for J&J. Here's Becky. Alex, thank you for being here today on this big news. The company goes all the way back to 1886, so this is a, a huge piece of news. Um, why now? Well, happy Friday, Becky. And look, before I answer your question directly, I know it's the day after I just want to acknowledge Veterans Day and, and all those men and women in the military, the first responders, the firefighters, the policemen who, uh, who make that kind of a sacrifice every day and their families so that we can actually do these kind of things. But look, this is a historic day for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, this is something that our board has deliberated about for some time. And we, we really believe that by separating our consumer business into a uh, separate uh, publicly traded company, uh, that it's in the best long-term interest of all of our stakeholders. Look, our, we realize this is a very unique time. Uh, if you just think of the changing dynamics and innovation and technology and markets and channels, and our goal is really to create two global leaders, a pharmaceutical and a medical device business uh, that has great potential today, but very strong pipelines for the future. And of course, the consumer business that's got iconic brands, uh, and we think we'll be well positioned to even have better focus around their strategy, around their execution, uh, around their ability to allocate capital, and ultimately to accelerate growth and to touch more consumers around the world. 
Uh, so uh, we're excited. Uh, and uh, again, we think this represents a tremendous opportunity for all of our stakeholders. Alex, you mentioned Veterans Day and thanking everyone who served. We should thank you as well. I know you went to West Point and were a captain. Was it, you were a captain in the Army before you kind of moved into your corporate career. So thank you for your service as well. When, when did this discussion start? How, how did it come about? When did you start thinking about this? Well, Becky, look, we think this is a big, we think this is a bold move, and it's one that has been a topic of discussion on our board of directors for some time. You know, it's important for iconic companies like Johnson & Johnson that, you know, in spite of the fact that we have been around for more than 135 years, to constantly challenge our strategy. And uh, and we've been having those discussions on a a routine basis for over the past decade. Uh, But Clearly, over the past several years, when you just look at some of the underlying trends, the again, this acceleration in innovation, particularly in our pharmaceutical segment, our medical device segment, when you take a look at these changing channels, and, and really where our pharma and our medical device business tends to be much more of a business-to-business relationship in the way that we work through other intermediaries, you know, compared to the consumer business, and most importantly, where we see things going into the future, we feel that now is the right time to make this kind of a move. Uh, and again, ultimately, it's going to allow us to reach more patients, more consumers, have more innovation, and execute in a much more focused way. How will the split work? I, I know that you are transitioning to executive chairman come the beginning of the year. Um, I, I take it you'll be staying with the pharmaceutical and medical device company? Yes. Well, as you can understand and appreciate, something like this is going to take some time. We're predicting it's going to take about 18 to 24 months. I'm going to be staying as the CEO through the end of this year, and I'm very proud to be handing off to Joaquin Duato as of January 3rd, but I'll be remaining as executive chairman. There's still a lot of details that need to be worked out on the exact timing, but the good news is, Beck, is, look, we've got a really deep bench of leaders here at Johnson & Johnson, and, and we think both these businesses are going to be well-positioned. Joaquin will continue to be the CEO for the you know, Johnson & Johnson, our, our, our pharmaceutical business, our medical device business. And uh, we know we'll have the right leadership in place in our consumer business going forward as well. This is one of the greatest brand names uh, of all time. It's incredibly well known. Which of the two companies is going to keep Johnson & Johnson? Or do you brand both of them with Johnson & Johnson and, and run the risk of a little consumer confusion as there is with HP and HP, uh, HPC Enterprises? Our pharmaceutical business, our medical device business will be Johnson & Johnson. Uh, the name of the new company is yet to be known. But, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, Becky. The consumer business as a standalone publicly traded company, think about it for a moment, it has more than four brands that are over a billion dollars in sales. We have more than 20 brands that are more than $150 million in sales. And these are really iconic brands. Tylenol, Aveeno, Neutrogena, Listerine, Motrin, Benadryl. And uh, we have a very strong pipeline. And, uh, and again, we think by doing this, it's going to provide them with even more agility, a, a better opportunity for capital allocation, uh, likely a way to even better uh, configure their corporate versus the, uh, the company structures, you know, and, and ultimately accelerate growth uh, and to reach more consumers. Is the plan definitely to spin it off as a separate company or the board is still considering that, too? Well, look, we're, we're looking at all options, but our intent is to spin this off as a publicly traded company, yes. And, and I, I take it the liabilities for the talcum powder cases that have come would go with the consumer business? Well, look, this is really about the future. We've been very clear in all of our filings regarding the, the uh, legal uh, uh, issues that you just um, mentioned. 
Uh, but this is about creating growth for the future in Johnson & Johnson and the new consumer company. Alex, just back to when these conversations started, you said the board's been considering it for a while. Is this going back more than a year? Can you give us any kind of insight as to when these conversations really started picking up and, and, and taking a serious turn? Well, look, Becky, as you would expect, every year when we go through our strategic planning process with the board, we have fundamental discussions where we try to take a look at um, where are the markets going in which we compete, what it, how are our products doing, what does our pipeline look for the future, uh, and, and we've consistently addressed this fundamental issue about the future of Johnson & Johnson in our portfolio, but clearly over the last several years, as we've seen some of these dynamics that I mentioned earlier evolve at an even faster rate, that became a catalyst. I think the pandemic and COVID-19, uh, particularly as you know, we've seen on the pharmaceutical side, the development uh, and the regulatory processes you know, shift quite significantly and the opportunity that that could create, uh, again, for both our device and pharmaceutical business, but also the very nature of you know, consumer demands, how they shop, how they're thinking about the products that they actually want. That also uh, we really played into this overall decision. You know, the, the people will look at the pharmaceuticals right now and maybe say the pipeline is strong there, but it is a riskier business. It, it, it goes through fluctuations of ups and downs. How do you make sure that, that it stays in a position where you have a lot in the pipeline? Well, it's really important, I believe, in the pharmaceutical business, Becky, and something that we've demonstrated is to take a long-term approach to the way that you manage it. And what I'm very proud of in our group is that if you look over the last decade, whether we had patent expiries, whether we had you know, launches of major competitors, we've been able to maintain an above-market growth rate throughout that period. And it's because of our long-term focus, our willingness to invest both internally and externally in innovation and in bringing new, really innovative products to the market, and also just the way that we're executing every day. And so in spite of often multi-billion dollar shifts due to those kind of issues, we've been able to you know, maintain consistent above market growth rates. And if we look at our pipeline going forward, we have you know, more than 10 filings or approvals expected over the next several years, each over a billion dollars, more than 50 line extensions, uh, 10 of which represent about a half a billion dollar opportunities. We remain very confident in our ability to do that as well. Pharmaceuticals and consumer staples have underperformed the S&P. Has that been a frustration to you? And why do you think that is? Well, look, I, I think it is something that will work itself out in the long run. As I look at the pharmaceutical industry more broadly, let alone our company, and I look at the promise of some of these new technologies, be it cell-based therapies, be it gene therapies, I don't think I've ever in my 35-year career seen a more promising time and seen a greater opportunity for acceleration. And while, yes, there are going to be risks about pricing uh, and, uh, and access and other issues, I clearly think that those are things that can be managed and, and worked with in more of an evolutionary way. And, uh, and so, again, I'm, we're very optimistic about our pharmaceutical business, about our medical device business, and, and I, we also believe our consumer business is very well positioned. And, and is it safe to assume that if this is going to take 18 to 24 months to work out, that, that you will stick around as executive chairman to oversee that process? Well, look, uh, as mentioned uh, in our announcement, I plan on being uh, here as the executive chair. We want to make sure there's a smooth transition. I'm incredibly proud of the selection with Joaquin. We've got a strong management team. Uh, and, and, Becky, the other thing that's really important is we are doing this from a position of strength. You know, if you look at our last quarterly results, for example, all three of our businesses are growing at or above their market rates. 
Our market shares are showing strong positioning. Our pipelines are stronger than they've ever been. So again, we think this is the right time. Uh, we recognize again that this is a historic move, but when we think about the long term for patients and consumers, and for Johnson and Johnson and our consumer business, you know, we're confident that this this will be positive for all of our stakeholders. Alex, we were just talking with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former head of the FDA, about um, Kaiser Permanente and what what he sees just in terms of patients coming back, patients who sat out for a year and a half at not doing some of the surgeries that they could have done because of COVID, or maybe they couldn't do it because hospitals weren't doing them. People put off medical care for more than a year. Now they're seeking out medical care. They're finding that they have some accrued morbidity. You're going to see that impact health care providers. They're going to get squeezed this year as people who've been sheltering in place and not seeking health care go out and seek it this year. I take it you've seen the same with the medical device business. Absolutely, Becky. Look, another, another unfortunate downside of COVID-19, not only was it patients who have been impacted by the virus itself, but about all those delayed visits to the physician, all those delays in being diagnosed, for example, with cancer. And we all know that the later that we're able to treat these things, uh, it increases the potential for an even worse outcome. And so we do think that there's significant pent-up demand. Uh, And again, I want to give a shout out to all the doctors, the nurses, the physicians, the hospital systems, the way they've been managing it. Uh, But we do anticipate that that pent-up demand will be working its way back through the system. We're seeing signs of that as we speak, particularly here in the United States, but also in Europe and other places around the world. And again, we think that represents a a significant opportunity, not only as we head into 2022, uh, but in years beyond as well. And finally, everyone's talking about inflation right now. I'm sure that impacts just about every one of your divisions in the business. Uh, But maybe consumer products is is the one that people would be watching most closely. Uh, Organic growth there last year of about 4%. What will inflation mean in terms of uh, compression on the margins, and, and how do you handle that? Well, look, we're watching it closely. And, uh, and I'm really proud of the job that our consumer team, our supply chain, has been able to do over the last 12 to 18 months in managing, you know, above and beyond inflation, just consider the volatility that we saw through 2021 uh, itself in, you know, uh, significant swings across the different product lines. Nonetheless, we were still able to meet that demand. We're absolutely committed to making sure that we maintain an appropriate pricing structure. We're working hard with, you know, our channel partners to do that. Uh, but we are, st- we are starting to see some stresses and strains in the systems with some under- uh, underlying supply products, but we're managing that closely. And uh, again, we're hopeful that we'll be able to maintain the strong performance, not only in our top line, like you just mentioned, we're seeing mid-single-digit growth in our consumer business, but also significant improvement in the profitability of our consumer segment as well. And, uh, and we expect that to continue going forward. Alex, I want to thank you for being with us on this busy morning. A, a huge announcement. Um, we appreciate your time, and it's really good to see you. Well, hey, Becky, if I can, just one final shout-out for our employees. Uh, the 136,000 committed employees at Johnson & Johnson, especially those in our consumer group, without their hard work, their commitment, their support, this would never be possible. So a huge thanks to all of them. And, and thank you for you know, spending this time this morning. 136,000 employees. How many will go to the pharmaceutical and medical devices? How many will be in the consumer business afterwards? Uh, slightly over 20,000. Uh, so for consumer? Again, we're, we're exactly of our consumer group on a global basis. Alex, again, thanks for being with us this morning. We will continue to look into this. We hope to hear from you again soon. Alex Gorski is uh, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. Thank you, Becky. Thank you. 
Next on Squawk Pod, work, getting to work, going to work. Two experienced bosses shed light on what your boss might be thinking. Ray Dalio, who founded one of the world's largest hedge funds. The success of people is not based on how smart they are or even how hard they work as much as how adaptable they are. And I think that the adaptability will be brought out, is being brought out, to create a much, much better work environment. And former Netflix chief talent officer, Patty McCord. I get all kind. every time I talk to somebody, I get the question, you know, who's doing it right? And my answer is nobody. We're all just making it up. And that's a wonderful thing. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Well, it's November. Many workers assumed by now there would be some certainty about how and where we get back to physical workplaces following the COVID-19 pandemic. But as we've learned in the last 18, 19, 20 months, the only constants are change and uncertainty. Leaders and executives are still grappling with the question, what does the future of work look like? CNBC's At Work event series examined the evolution of work since the pandemic began and ways innovative companies are managing. They're finding and keeping the best workers, upending traditional roles, or maybe investing in something new. Becky Quick sat down with Ray Dalio, founder of hedge fund Bridgewater Associates, and former Netflix chief talent officer Patty McCord to discuss what's happening at work. Here's Becky. I am really thrilled to be here with both Ray and Patty this morning because these are two people who have spent an awful lot of time thinking about the future of work and many other things. And and, and Ray, I'm going to start with you because you are somebody who has really applied principles to thinking about the workplace, thinking about how people work together. And I'm just wondering what you're feeling at this point. We've been through uh, 19, 20 months now of this pandemic. It has lasted longer than any of us have thought. What are you thinking just in terms of what the future of the workplace will look like? Well, I think uh, the future of the workplace is going to be characterized by probably two things, customization and technology. I think we're now... We've been given a gift to be able to rethink what we're doing. And you can see it in the economic statistics of how people are changing jobs in their uh, in the workplace. So I think that customization, when each will be different, um, like at Bridgewater, um, we're intentionally thinking about the time together. At when do you have to have impersonal time? 
And so when we bring people together, it's more purposeful for that kind of uh, experience. And then at the same time, what are the freedoms that you can create of where people live and so on? I think the whole competition in the job market is going to be around those kinds of things. And I think that also with technology, that that's going to play an important role. We've learned it. Look at what we're doing right now. And we're going to have a lot more of that. So I think that customization for the individual, for the organization to allow greater differences to exist in a better way, and then also the technologies that are going to enable that, I think those will be the big forces in the future, and I think they're happening now. Very quickly, Ray, does that mean customization and technology, does that mean that we're going to be looking at really highly qualified workers, the workers who are most in demand, being the ones who get to customize when they come in and when they don't come in, and are we going to be looking at at a lot more Zoom uh, conferences in the future? Yes, I, th- I think that in a tight job market for that type of talent, the ability to order, offer the flexibility that can work that we never considered before will be an important competitive element and it'll be an important element in producing uh, efficiencies because we'll think about that. And yes, so I think and on, the technologies will, en- will enable that. So I think it's going to be a better job, a better environment in where people will get both the personalization and the um, ability to be more efficient through the technologies. Patty, best practices is sort of a a buzzy catchphrase right now. And it's one that people use all the time when they say that organizations should be putting best practices in. How how do you feel about best practices and how should it apply here? I applaud the death of the term best practices. And and (laughs) I also applaud the death of the term uh, consistency because we've started to realize that that our workers are adults and they come to work with very different circumstances. And so I couldn't agree more about, um, about customization and about creating workplaces that work for getting the work done in the way that the employees want to do it. I think it's giving employees a greater um, strength and a bigger voice in thinking about how they want to work and how they're going to do their best work. And I think it's going to be different for lots of companies. I get all kind. every time I talk to somebody, I'd get the question, you know, who's doing it right? And my answer is nobody. <laughs> We're all just making it up. And that's a wonderful thing. We're making it up. But if you are a company leader who's trying to figure out the best way to do it, should you be looking at certain places or should you be talking to your employees? How, how do you figure out which way to go? If I mean, it, there's so many things everybody's trying to do at one time, trying to figure out a new way to evolve the workplace. Is, is, it may not be high on the priority list. Well, I think you the your second your second statement was the better one. First, you should be talking to employees. I mean, <clears throat> we should be writing down every day, every week, what's working and what's not working, and looking back at the trends over time. We've learned so much. I mean, the downside is it's been 19 months. The upside is it's been enough time for us to really experiment with a lot of different ways to work. So start to figure out what's working for people, and then you know. Com- Compare it to the P&L, right? What's, what parts of the business are working, where people are producing, what's really happening that's, that is efficient and effective, and then dive down into how those people are working and what's working for them. Ray, you, you are somebody who's always been pretty data-driven. How, how do you kind of put data metrics around this and figure out what you can do, what works, and what doesn't? Well, um, 
start, I, I start with the economic data. Uh, you look at the employment report, let's say the big picture, and it conveys what we know. Uh, dropping out of the workforce, people are dropping out of the workforce. They're changing the nature of their jobs um, so that you can see that, that you're seeing this adaptation. Um, and then uh, data is, is information, is fact. You can gather that data just uh, as we were just discussing, the understanding what people think and feel and how they're behaving is all available in data. And so I think the combination of data, technology, and the personalization will be the, the force. There are so many ways I can go into describing how that data is collected. Uh, we have a tool called the dot collector, which collects all of that data. We have personality profiles. We have communication, something that in which there's um, data every day interacting with the clients, with the um, people who are working there to find out what they're perceiving, what they're doing, and all of that. There's a plenty of data around. And the combining of the data with the speaking to the clients and the technology is a very powerful force. Ray, you mentioned before that, that part of this has to be around uh, around trust um, and and making sure that employers are kind of taking this from a step back and being able to say, even if I don't see you in the office, I know that you're getting your work done. And, and so maybe that is, is enough to keep me going. Is that kind of a new thought process when it comes to the corporate world? Um, yeah. Um, but nowadays, with with the element of data, you can measure somebody's productivity. You can you know, you can see if they're hard at it and they're and they're productive. Um, you don't have to have them in the office. And it's not like you're going to have eyeballs on them and saying, are you working harder than that? There were so many tools today that make it very clear how productive people are. And it gives them greater freedom to be productive in that way. So I think the data and the technology uh, enables uh, freedom and, and, and choice. It, there's, there's more information about everything, not less information. And, and Patty, I know that this, this is an area you've thought a lot about, too. I, I mean, you can take the data and you can make sure that people are working, but there, there's also a point where it kind of steps over the line. The Wall Street Journal and other places have reported recently just about how invasive some of those data points can be. It's one thing to be measuring the output. It's another thing to be kind of watching their eyeballs and their keystrokes along every second of the day. Yeah, and I don't think we need to do that. And it's interesting hearing Ray talk about it because you know, all this information's always been there. We, we've always, but, but we've had this sense that if we don't see people working, then they're not working. And so what I find really interesting right now is that muscle was always there. We could have always done it differently. We could have always been flexible about how people work. And we just chose not to because that's the way we've always done it. So I love that we broke, you know, every time I talk, I afterwards people come up and they say, you make a lot of sense. You're so logical. Um, we'd like to do it too, but we can't because we're not a tech company. We can't because we're regulated. We can't because we're in Europe. We can't. Be, and now, boom, you know, 72 hours, we all did it differently. So let's use that muscle and realize that we've always been able to do that. And if we can do this, imagine what else we can do. And more importantly, imagine what else we can do when we don't do the things that took up a lot of time that don't really matter. I mean, now is a really good time to clean house, right? If we didn't do it for the last 18 months, it probably wasn't important then. The freedom, the enjoyment, the satisfaction, Netflix 
and read in what read his book. And, and you go back, I've known Reed for a long time. And the notion of what personal freedom can allow in terms of creativity and also having the satisfaction of those employees enjoying their job and allowed to be creative is such an important element. So this is freeing. And I want to really congratulate uh, and, and make the point that uh, Patty was saying. Uh, they have been able to do that for a long time. And, you know, and we at Bridgewater try to have tried to do that. That is a power when they love their job and they have the freedom and you give them the freedom. You will get the best employees, the best people who are partners in the organization read uh, Reed's book. And Patty, to that point, this is a tough job market. Oh, but, you know, um, here's how I think about it. I think about it as the job market is a series of problems that need to be solved. And so what we what you want to do is make sure that the people that you're hiring and the people that you're, you're working with are people who are passionate and capable of solving those problems. And so if you focus on the problem set and you give people a lot of freedom to get there, you know, you have some time frames and you have boundaries around it, then people will. I mean, I think that's the most important thing that we've learned. You started off talking about trust, and that's exactly what we've learned. You know, guess what? If you tell somebody they need to get it done by Friday and why they need to get it done by Friday and what it matters to the business and how it matters to the client or the customer, they'll do it. People are motivated to do great work. And I honestly believe that everybody is motivated to do great work if you give them the freedom to do it. And the only point that I would uh, uh, differ slightly is um, some people are absolutely great that way and stars and you want to make them happy. And some people aren't. And that may not be the right environment, but the stars are like that. So you and it's very easy to know which is which. It's very easy to know which is which. So just keep the stars, give them the freedom, and you'll know which is which, and that's a good policy. But also, it's not everybody, really. Yeah, well, I mean, to the point of customization, um, I I think that we can break down these kind of principles, Ray, uh, to every worker. Um, You know, I I remodeled my bathroom and my uh, tile guy came in and he said, I want to introduce you to Fabio. He'll be your, um, he'll be your craftsman on this project. And I realized that Fabio wanted to make the tile as incredible as he could make it. And so, you know, people at different jobs, again, about customization, have different motivations to get them to to do work, right? The other thing I was thinking this morning about uh, the revolt of the essential worker, Right. If we're so essential, then we probably should be paid fairly and be able to take care of our families and find a place to live. So how about that? Right. (laughs) You know, the revenge of the the revenge of the waiter. Right. So um, I I think we can apply those principles to every job. And I think that there are stars in every role and that by and large people, all people want to be proud of doing a good job. Patty, part of what you're talking about is really treating people like adults. Because they are. <laughs> we, we have child labor laws here in the U.S. So. Unfortunately, we don't always do that. We don't always treat employees like, oh, by the way, you're an adult. I am not your teacher. I'm not your babysitter. And yeah. by doing that, maybe you get more out of people. 
But look at this is our chance, right? We, we've already broken it, right? We've broken so many, uh, you know, norms that I hate the idea of the new normal. Isn't that an oxymoron? I mean, it's either new or it's normal, right? So let's not do that, right? Let's not go back. And and I think that's the most important learning from, from this whole crisis experiment, whatever we've been going through, is that workers are grown-ups. I mean, look at the, the, one of the things I talk a lot about, Reed and I have talked about is, you know, you're a team, not a family. And we certainly see it now when we're living in the world of Zoom, you know, the toddler that walks in looking for the pacifier is your family, right? The person you're on the Zoom call with is your teammate. So that, that ability to look into people's lives and realize these are adults who have responsibilities outside of work and they're not two different people. You know, there's not work dad and, and on home dad, right? There's not work mom. Wait a minute. Maybe work mom doesn't get to be work mom because she has to be home mom. So that idea of integrating people's whole lives into how they're productive at work, I think is super healthy. I agree. I am not a work wife to anybody either. Hey, Ray, let me let me ask you this. Um, we're talking about this and this you already touched on this at the very top. This is definitely a moment where workers are, are having a lot more say. That's in part because it's such a tight job market right now. Do you see this kind of ebbing and flowing? And once the job market goes down, as it inevitably will at some point, um, there's kind of a regression to the mean or not? No, I think that... Um... I think there are timeless and universal truths. Um, For me, the culture that I wanted was meaningful work and meaningful relationships through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. And to build that kind of trust for Patty and Netflix, that's been a timeless and universal truth that she's speaking to. And I think that uh, the success of people is not based on how smart they are or even you know how hard they work as much as how adaptable they are and i think that the adaptability will be brought out is being brought out to create a much much better work environment so i don't think we're going to come back to the old world where um, I think that you're, there's just the realization of these opportunities. Patty, you said something a little bit ago, and I want to go back to this, maybe end on this note, because I think it's important. You talked about how, you know, employers everywhere should be rethinking the workplace and maybe getting rid of things that didn't work. If we haven't done it in 18 or 19 months, maybe we don't need to. What do you think about um, all hands on deck meetings? It's a really good time to rethink it. Um, I'll tell you that any company that's global has already been thinking about it anyway. So back to how Ray started the conversation, this is a real opportunity for technology to really help us uh, using all the tools that we have uh, to communicate to people. I mean, we're, we're right here on video right now. And so I think that video is an incredible tool and that how we communicate to people consistently can easily be done with video. So I think it's a matter of using, uh, you know, all... All of, the, all of the ways that we've experimented with and saying, you know, how do we leverage what we've learned to make a better and more informed workforce going forward? And Ray, I'll just give you the last word. In, in terms of that evolution and adaptability, wh- where do you think we'll be 
five, ten years from now? Oh, I think mm. there are going to be a lot, of, a lot of changes <laughs> in the world over those five and ten years. But uh, yeah. you know, history has shown that even in the worst of times, the best of times, whatever. Um, human adaptability and technology uh, that comes from it is the greatest powerful force because just as we've seen in terms of coming up with vaccines and the various adaptability that will face all of those challenges and will come to a better work. But I think it's going to be a radically different kind of work. What, what is employment? How will technology be replacing people? How will that be dealt with? How will the wealth gap be dealt with? There are many, many things that will affect employment and, and the sharing of opportunities and what those opportunities are going to be. There are going to be many, many changes over the next five years. Ray Dalio, Patty McCord, thank you both for making us think very deeply about what's been happening all around us, maybe be a little bit more purposeful in what we're doing with these changes. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you both. Yeah, we're all just making it up. You can hear more conversations like this directly from leaders and innovators appearing at CNBC's live event series on the Keynote Podcast. It's produced by friends of ours at CNBC and available for download wherever you listen. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Okay, that's it. That is Squawk Pod for this Friday. Thanks for listening, as always. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And let us know what you think. Send us a tweet at Squawk CNBC or write a review on Apple Podcasts. Sharing is caring. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.